Welcome to your Thursday edition of London Live on 980 CFPL. My name is Jess Brady. I'm your guest host this week. Mike is on vacation and we are holding down the fort for him while he's away enjoying some rest and relaxation as he very much deserves. Busy show, as you heard from uh, Devin Peacock as he was wrapping up the 96 take. There's a lot on the go today. It's going to be busy. We're going to be chatting with a lot of different people. And first up... I want to ask you, how many of you had your cell phones go off in the middle of the night overnight? Oh, producer Kelly raised her hand. Yes, it did for her. Mine didn't because as I've worked out, my phone died overnight, ran out of battery. So that's why I didn't, I wasn't woken up by the sound of the Amber Alert going off. That's right. We had another one going off overnight. And thankfully, the little little child that was involved in this case was, I believe, two years old. She is fine. She is back in the care of her family, which is good. As uh, you've heard Jacqueline LaBelle in her newscast just now, she was giving an update on that. Everyone is good. Everyone is fine, which is excellent news. One thing that is not excellent news is, guess what? More people called in to 911 to complain. Why? I feel like Michael Scott. Why are you the way that you are? This is terrible. Come on. I mean, I ranted, like, at length, ad nauseum the other day. (laughs) Are you not listening? Now we got to go over this again. Come on. Come on now. That's just terrible. Well, in one interesting turn of events because of this additional Amber Alert, been able to touch base with Dahlia Monacelli. She is the lady who is behind the petition on change.org to have fines instituted for people who call 911 to complain about the Amber Alert. So she's been a very busy lady this week, talking to lots of media outlets, and uh, we were able to touch base with her. I'm really excited. Uh, She joins me on the line now to talk about where her petition sits. A spoiler alert, she's over 78,000 signatures online now, which is really cool. Uh, And yeah, so Dahlia Monticelli, she joins me live. Dahlia, thanks so much for joining us. You have had a very busy week with uh, uh, talking with a lot of media coast to coast. First of all, uh, what what has this been like for you as as you put together this petition uh, to institute fines for people who are calling 911 uh, to f- complain about Amber Alerts? What's this week been like for you? Well, uh First of all, thank you for having me, Jess. And uh, um, yeah, you know, it has been it has been a quite a busy week. Um, uh, as you said, I've talked to so many new people and uh, news outlets out there. Um, it has been exciting, and um, it really gives me hope for the future and for something to really change. Um, a little stressful, but you know, that's uh, I guess that's to uh, to be expected. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> when these uh, sorts of stories kind of take off now in, in the, the age that we live in, it kind of goes viral a little bit. So no no wonder then that uh, lots of people have been reaching out because it's, it's a good idea in my estimation. I talked about it the other day uh, on air at length and I just, I, I am, my mind is boggled that we are at this place where so many people are calling in to complain about these alerts. We had another one overnight, uh, as, as, uh, as you know, a little girl that was uh, taken from Brantford, thankfully, she is safe. Everything is is fine. But again, we're hearing reports that there were complaints into 911. And it just, we've had so much coverage of this. Don't call 911. And people are still doing it. Why do you think this, just in in your opinion, why do you think people are still doing this? Well, um, you know, the only thing that comes to my mind is the fact that they're 
just selfish, to be honest, because, you know, I was also woken up yesterday night, but I honestly, I couldn't go back to sleep, not because of the alert itself, but just because I was worried for the little girl. And I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. Um, I think um, there is also a little bit of misinformation out there. Um, and, you know, I agree the, the, about the fact that um, the system needs uh, improving, and there is no doubt about that because it is quite a new system. You know, it has been implemented uh, what for like uh, maybe like the past year or so. Uh, so you know, um, but it is to be expected, obviously, right? It is a new system, and uh, everything needs improvement, obviously. So um, I just think, uh, yeah, but I just think people are selfish. That's that's the main reason um, that uh, they do this. Yeah, it. I mean, really, it only comes down to <laughs> a couple of options, you know. Uh, and uh, I think that you're you're probably bang on with your assessment there. So, and as I as I said, like when I talked about this um, a couple of days ago, the idea of fines, honestly, I think would probably work best out of all the options, just because so often when we have behavior that people won't change, we have to make it hurt in some measure for them to stop it. So fines, hit them in the wallet. Uh, how did you come up with the idea for the petition and then and to move forward on this? Because a lot of people would be like, yeah, they should be fined, but they wouldn't do what you did, which was actually take action on this. Well, um, you know, I have seen a lot of comments from people saying that they should be fined. I've always thought they should since the, um, the first thing, uh, I guess, happened uh, in February with the uh, little Ria. So um, I, I was already um, outraged. I was, I was uh, mad about uh, all these calls coming in. And, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, as you said, I think this is the best way to do that. And, you know, yesterday night is just proof that this is not going to stop. No matter how many times the police or uh, the media is going to um, invite people to stop calling 911 because of this um, alert going out and because they're being woken up for all of two minutes. Um, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not going to stop. That's my opinion. And I stand by it. And yesterday night was proof. Um, and I just want to add that uh, some people are taking my petition as to, um, you know, uh, against freedom of speech or stuff like that. Well, I just want to clarify, this is absolutely not what this is about, because you are free to exercise your freedom of speech however you like it. Just 911 is not where to do that. That's not the place to do that. And it is only for emergencies. You're taking time away from real emergencies. It could cost lives. Um, it's, it's just not how it's supposed to work. So again, not about freedom of speech. It is about you stop calling 911 to complain about it. Absolutely. Yeah, bang on. And uh, it's it's funny how the messages uh, that that can get twisted, right? Because as you said, that's not what you're not trying to limit anybody's ability to sound off on these things. It's just do it in an appropriate way. <laughs> and they get a lot of flack for uh, complaining because it is seen as heartless to complain about these alerts in that way. Of like, course. You know, like you, there's a way to discuss it. And I think the way that you did, Dahlia, earlier saying, yes, there is ob- obviously room for improvement. And, uh, you know, I had a discussion, a couple of discussions. One gentleman called in uh, earlier in the week and then I was talking with some people on Twitter. Uh, for sure, we can, you know, discuss the system and say, yeah, the, the tone is startling. That is its 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 purpose is to grab our attention. But, yeah, maybe there are ways that we can go about it so that it's a little less uh, rattling for people, you know, like for sure we can have those discussions. But let's also keep in mind that this is the way it is for a reason. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with that. 
and yeah, um, let's improve it. Let's uh, do anything we can to make it uh, so it's uh, super effective, which is it already is. Yeah. But you know, uh, just a little, um, uh, just a little improvements here and there, but nothing much. Yeah. Um, this is uh, uh, it's been proven to work, and uh, uh, you know, it is for children's lives. So um, this is one of the things we should focus on as a, as a, as a society, right? For sure. Now, how does it feel, Dahlia, to look at the total uh, of like the counter on the petition and see that you're like over 78,000 signatures right now? Uh, what is that like to see it? Well, definitely uh, heartwarming <laughs> because, uh, you know, um, it's nice to know that there are people out there who have a good sense of humanity and uh, they're in good conscience and they uh, care more about children rather than their sleep. Uh, so, that's really that really kind of restores my faith in humanity because hearing some of the calls that were released um, from these people calling to complain was really really um, disgusting to me. Um, just the way they handle things and just the call itself, I guess it was just um, yeah appalling. Yeah, no, it is. It, it's kind of like the best and the worst of humanity on display this week. All the people who are supporting the petition, yay, good for them. <laughs> and then the worst course, is when people yeah. are calling in to, to make those complaints because it, it is the last thing uh, that operators need to be hearing that sort of stuff. Well, before I let you go, has anyone reached out to you, say, from uh, like a like a political stance, like any MPPs? Have they reached out to you yet about next steps and making this a reality? I know Sylvia Jones made a comment about my petition, if I'm not mistaken, and Doug Ford was asked about it. He mm-hmm. said he didn't know about it yet, but he was going to look into it. So, you know, it is getting out there. And, you know, you can help me spread the message. Um, I do have a shortcut for the petition. It is change.org slash alert. So it is quite uh, easy to remember. You just input that in your browser or on your phone, and it's going to take you straight there. It takes less than a minute to sign and less than a minute to share it. Perfect. That's that's great. And yeah, actually, it was our uh, our reporter, Andrew Graham, who uh, asked the premier the other day when he was up in Lucan about about the petition and if he'd heard of it. So, yeah, we're we're uh, we're there. We're with you. We're trying, we're raising awareness about it. So um, thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you, Dahlia. Again, I know that it's been a really busy week for you. And uh, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Best of luck as as you move forward with the petition. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. And you have a great day. You too. So there you have it. More people complaining about the nine one or about the Amber Alerts and calling nine one one. Give your head a shake. Stop it. Seriously, there are better ways to voice your displeasure over it. Okay. Seriously, because as I said before, nine one one is meant for emergency situations. So unless you have information that could help end the Amber Alert, I don't want you calling nine one one. It's pretty basic. I feel like. I should be channeling Sergeant Dave Rector from the OPP, who's who's retired now, but he was always great at hammering home messages that are just common sense. Like, come on, really and truly. Yes, it is a scary tone to hear coming out of your phone in the middle of the night, but it is for a reason and it's meant to be that way. So if you're going to complain about it, do it a different way. Don't complain to 911 because it is just tying up the lines for actual emergencies. And a bit of an update, the uh, petition now, of Dahlia's has 79,104 signatures. That's just a little a little uh, update for you on that campaign. So if you haven't signed it yet, maybe you want to. You know, it's there.
It's online. Dahlia gave you the uh, the uh, the shortcut to the petition, so you can go check it out. Okay, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be chatting with Andrew Graham, ace reporter with 980CFBL here in London. He had a busy morning. He not only was on the morning shift uh, coming in very early, uh, but he was also up in Seaforth for one of the Stanley Cup celebrations for uh, Ryan O'Reilly, who was with... St. Louis Blues, obviously, and they won the Stanley Cup back in June. And so now the the Cup is making the rounds to all the team members' uh, hometowns and areas where they grew up and things like that, wherever they want to share uh, the Cup with. And so Andrew was up there and he's going to join us in studio to talk a little bit about how that went uh, and uh, what he saw, what he experienced. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the show. It's Jess Brady here on your Thursday edition of London Live. I'm your guest host for the week. Mike's on vacation. He's back on Monday. Back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> Until then, you've got me. <laughs> and before the break, I uh, told you that we were going to have a chat with our very own Andrew Graham, who's been working very hard today, as he does every day. Uh, but he was out in the field this morning, and uh, he was up in Seaforth. And that was uh, because Ryan O'Reilly, local, local hockey star has brought the Stanley Cup back to the region. And so Ryan O'Reilly grew up in like the Clinton area, up in up in that neck of the woods. So he's making a couple of stops with the Cup uh, today. I think they're in Godrich right now or in and around this time. But this morning they were in Seaforth. And so uh, reporting ace Andrew Graham went out there and uh, had a chance to, to see all the festivities. And he joins me now. Andrew, thanks so much for taking a, a few moments this afternoon to chat with me about this morning in Seaforth. It was a very busy day for you. You're up early uh, working the morning shift and then you're in Seaforth. So tell me about the crowds. How exciting was it to be there for the Stanley Cup? Yeah, it was crazy. You know, so many people turned out. I just couldn't believe uh, how many people were actually on the streets. I mean, more than a thousand. And I think it was more than Seaforth residents. I know it was more than Seaforth residents because I saw people from, from the States, people from Toronto, from Montreal. But really a, a crazy celebration for uh, Ryan O'Reilly today. That's amazing. It's really neat to see how uh, the community rallies around. It, it makes a lot of sense because when the playoffs are on and uh, you know they're in the Stanley Cup Finals, Everyone comes together. You have large viewing parties. Uh, you know, it's it's a lot of hometown pride. It's right across the country, but really, when you are in Seaforth, in the communities where uh, these players grew up and people have known them since they were yay high to a grasshopper, as the old saying goes, they take a lot of pride and excitement in seeing the cup come home. And it's it's not something that happens often. It's not. It's not. And you know, not everyone there was St. Louis fans. There's there's actually a very few St. Louis fans, but everyone was Ryan O'Reilly fans. Again, yeah. I talked to people like they're Leafs fans. Vancouver fans, Habs fans, what name you, but everyone there had a huge place in their heart for uh, for Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah, so. it's pretty cool. And so you had a chance to talk to, as you were saying, uh, a few people, right? And from away? From away, from away. One particular fan was from Toronto, and he was interesting to talk to because, again, like I said, not a St. Louis fan whatsoever, <laughs> a huge Toronto Maple Leaf fan. And his name was Bill Schiller, and I'm talking to him, and I, I say to you, you know, how's it feel to come all this distance to see a St. Louis Blues player lift the trophy. And he had a funny uh, funny little tidbit to say about that. I mean, in Toronto, you know, you can only see the Leafs win the Stanley Cup on the History Channel. So uh, to be here and to witness a real Stanley Cup parade is a real privilege. We're just glad that we came out. <laughs> and I thought that was a 
have a funny thing to say, but it just shows you. I mean, the the pride for a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, and I'm a Maple Leaf fan myself. <laughs> long suffering, long suffering Maple Leaf fan. But to be able to give up, you know, seeing a trophy being held by a Maple Leaf, just to see a C4 boy uh, lifted up, always good to see that. So absolutely, and I know that uh, Ryan O'Reilly actually did a quick spot with our brother station FM 96 this morning with Taz and Jim, and uh, yeah, they were kind of sort of talking about the same thing that that pride and uh, Ryan O'Reilly was was I think a bit blown away by the response and how many people were there. Yeah, and again, like, and he deserves it because he really does uh, put his hometown first. I mean, during the uh, Seaforth Parade, they had people from the local Seaforth Arena, local uh, uh, groups and whatnot, riding the parade with them. So it wasn't just this NHL star coming. It was honestly like a hometown hero returning back home. And then later that day, he's also going to Goderich, doing another meet and greet, talking to fans. So really cool to see that hometown pride really take over there. Yeah, it's exciting and like the little kids, I can only imagine how pumped they would have been to like get to stand next to the Stanley Cup and meet Ryan O'Reilly and it's a big moment for for little kids. Like the, growing up in Canada, this is what we do, right? It, you, you idolize this exactly. whole process. No, it's huge and you know like as a reporter, I'm, I'm running, I'm sprinting to get to the front <laughs> to try and take photos and there was this group of kids who were just staying along with me the whole time Aww. and they were like way outpacing me. They were fast runners <laughs> and I'm sweating over here dying and they're just like sprinting ahead just to get a glimpse of this uh, of this trophy, the Stanley Cup. So that was really heartwarming to see. Absolutely. Very, very sweet. I remember, I, I feel like it's almost like a rite of passage for reporters in Canada because yes. <laughs> I I also covered a Stanley Cup uh, uh, homecoming in, in London when mm-hmm. Dave Boland brought it to, to London and he was up at Highland Golf Course. And so that was pretty cool to see it in person and see how they how they do everything. So and, yeah. and I should say, like, it is massive. It, it is, is way bigger than you think it'd be. I mean, I've seen Everyone knows the Stanley Cup, but mm. you see it in person. It was about half the size of Ryan O'Reilly, and he's a big guy. So yeah, he's tall. massive, massive trophy. Yeah, and you like I think about the guys when they like hoist it yes. <laughs> after the win, yeah. like ah, like oof, they, dead tired. It's a good thing still, they're athletes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what they train for. That's right. Just hoisting the cup. That's it. That's and, it. That's yeah. really all it's all about. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Andrew, thank you so much for uh, again taking some time out of your afternoon to to debrief us and tell us how everything went in Seaforth. And a nice job this morning covering all the festivities. Thank you so much for having me, Jess. Okay. So there you have it. It's a big party up in uh, up in Seaforth and Godrich right now and in the Clinton area. There's lots going on. And it should be. It's just an exciting time. And it's always nice when the players are able to, you know, share the cup and uh, the excitement of it with the people who have known them since they were very, very young. Knee high to a grasshopper. I said the wrong thing before. I messed it up, but y'all knew what I was talking about, which is which is helpful. But yeah, so it's very it's a very exciting day, and uh, you know, lots of. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like to bring home the Stanley Cup after like you've won it, you've gone through a whole season working so hard, you get through the playoffs, and then the glory of that. It must be like pretty emotional to bring something of such importance back home to share with your community. That's seen you through highs and lows, seen you when you were teeny tiny, as you grew up and as you, you know, developed all your skills. It's really exciting. It's cool. I'm excited for Ryan O'Reilly to do this and for all of his other teammates as they get their turn, their individual days to uh, bring the cup home to their, their, their communities and their family and friends. It's pretty neat. Pretty cool. I'm pumped for them. So we're going to take a little bit of a turn after we come back from the news. Shifting gears, if you will. Um, talking about how, you know, it's easy 
to be distracted sometimes when we are perhaps excited at an event. Maybe we're at a party and we get distracted. Or maybe we're checking something out on our phones, which is pretty cool. Maybe you've seen a tweet about the Stanley Cup and you're excited about that. But when it comes to water safety, the Life Saving Society wants to make sure that you are not distracted by anything when you've got little ones in the water with you. Okay, so they have this new campaign out and it's focusing on parents, especially, but anyone who is uh, looking after kids, put down your phones. Do not be distracted by your phones or anything else for that matter when you are watching little ones in the pool. And this comes right in smack dab in the middle of Drowning Prevention Week. And this is a big campaign for the Life Saving Society. If uh, any of you have been checking out our local uh, City of London pools, you will notice that the staff at all of those pools are running different uh, initiatives to raise awareness about drowning prevention. Uh, they usually involve a lot of different um Community agencies, they come out and, uh, you know, the, I've seen the London Police and London Fire Department and paramedics. They've been making the rounds to some of the pools to kind of educate and help uh, help patrons learn more about drowning prevention and just first aid uh, in general. It's a really great initiative. And the, all the funds that are raised, they do a lot of bake sales and stuff this week too, uh, raising cash for the Life Saving Society and, and good initiatives and programming that goes back to uh, safety and prevention efforts. So it's really good. So when we come back from the break... We're going to be talking with Barbara Byers. She's the public education director for the Life Saving Society, talking specifically about this new campaign, but putting down your phones. Do not be distracted when you have little ones by the pool. That's coming up after the news on 980 CFPL. Jess Brady back with you for the Thursday edition of London Live, broadcasting live from downtown London. It's looking like a pretty nice day out there. A little bit of cloud cover. 26 degrees, feeling like 31 with the Humidex, so it is a little muggy. Not too bad, though. It's a good day to be by a pool, in my estimation. If you can be. I mean, some of us, we gotta be, we gotta be at work, and there, there are no pools here <laughs> at uh, Chorus London. Unfortunately, maybe we could get like a little, like a plastic wading pool or something to put in our great hall here. That would be kind of cool. Just dip our toes in cool off. Thankfully, we have a lot of air conditioning. But I know that our city pools and our backyard pools all across uh, London are very busy these days with the heat that we've been experiencing. And it's always a good time to remind people of water safety. But this week especially is uh, very important. It's Drowning Prevention Week. And the Life Saving Society, which is always uh, on the lookout for ways to educate and improve safety uh, around our pools, our waterfronts, all that good stuff. They are doing their darndest to raise awareness this week, especially with this uh, new campaign. It's not, well, I shouldn't say like that it's new per se, because this is always a message uh, that they promote, not being distracted when you're watching little ones in the water or anyone in the water. It's not just kids that we have to watch out for for safety. Um, but they want people to put down their cell phones, pay attention. Yeah, it's, you would think it's common sense, but unfortunately, not so much. And joining me on the line right now to talk about this is Barbara Byers, and she is the Public Education Director for the Life Saving Society. Barbara, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. So tell me a little bit about this uh, push and renewed effort for people to put down their cell phones. And it's it's kind of funny because I just tweeted about the fact that we were doing this segment. Uh, but I'll, I will tell you right now, my phone is now on the desk. Okay, I'm hands-free. <laughs> well, I think uh, that's a good little segue because I think it's really important to say we can't do two things at the same time well. 
I mean, we've probably all been in situations where we're on their phone and our friend or partner, family member might say, you know, Jess, Jess, you go, what, 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 what? Oh, yeah, oh, what, what were you saying, right? Because if you're looking at your phone, you can't attentively be in the conversation. So if you take that to the next step with, um, say, your kids, and say you've got a child and she's going, mommy, 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 and then you're going, what, 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 and then you pay attention. So what the worst thing that happened there is you've ignored your child and not given them attention, but they're probably safe if they're in the same room. You take it to the next step and say they're in the ba- say you're, they're at the park and they're on you're on your phone and they're playing on the swing set. Well, you won't be able to prevent them from doing something uh, risky because you won't see them if you're on your phone, but you would probably hear them scream and then you could help them. So if you take it to the third step, someone's in the water, your child's in the water. Now this is when it goes to a whole new level because drowning is silent and it happens very very quickly you are not going to hear them. So if you're on your phone, there's two things that happens. One, you are not aware of what they're doing. You're not able to see that they're getting themselves in a difficult situation, either going into the water when you don't want them to be there or swimming and then in trouble. If they get a, um, if they're in a drowning situation, they'll get a, some water down their airway, which means they can't breathe and they can't talk, they can't scream. So you're not going to hear them, and then drowning can happen in 20 seconds. So you can't prevent them. You can't anticipate and see this happening. And as well, you're not going to hear them because you're not watching. So it's so important when your children, when your family members are around water, that you put that phone away and you focus 100% so you can be, you know, essentially your child's lifeguard. That is your job as a parent, as a caregiver, um, to be watching them and to um, to ensure you can head off or prevent any problems. You see the men around the water, and very importantly, you can respond very quickly. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is a topic that you and I, Barbara, have talked mm-hmm. about a, a number Absolutely. of times. And it's I think that it's very fitting that this is one of the messages for, uh, you know, Drowning Prevention Week, because it, it only takes seconds. And mm-hmm. it's it's something that we all catch ourselves doing. I had a, a quick conversation in the newsroom uh, earlier this morning when we were we were looking at different stories for the day. And, uh, you know, one of my colleagues said, yeah, because how often do you just say, oh, I'm going to check my phone really quickly. Yeah. And then yeah. two, like what feels like two seconds seconds later, you look at the clock and it's actually been five minutes that you've whittled away on there. Absolutely. And it's so easy. I mean, we all get consumed by our phones. I mean, and all all the time. And, you know, sometimes it's annoying. It's not um, kind or thoughtful or caring with our friends or family um, if you're in a safe situation. But when you get around water, it can be absolutely life-threatening. It's so hard to do things at once. I mean, all the neuroscience research out there says we can't do two things at the same time well. So it's so important that we're not being distracted. We need to get that phone and put it away so we can't even glance at it because it's it's a draw. It's almost a magnetic attraction to us. So you need to just treat it as an opportunity to be be off your phone and focus because, you know, Jess, you're a former lifeguard yourself mm-hmm. and I get... I get um, Contact information all the time from lifeguards who say this is so important now that they see parents on their phone all the time. Yeah. Um, and our campaign has a picture of a card with a little child and she's holding it. It says, watch me, not your phone. Um, this campaign was sort of a derivative of a campaign in Australia where they had a similar one in outdoor pools where lifeguards were working. And part of it was they had lifeguards 
the guys, the, the male lifeguards, on the back of their shorts <laughs> with a sign that said, don't watch me, watch your child. <laughs> oh, my God, I love that. So I thought that was pretty funny. But still, <laughs> yeah, it's easy to get distracted in many ways. So um, just as I think as a parent, as a caregiver, as a grandparent, just keep thinking in your head, I am my child's lifeguard, even though you may not know how to swim. Uh, but you need to be the advocate and the person with uh, the most care and attention with your child, and then uh, you can get help right away if they get into difficulty because time is of the essence when someone's in a drowning situation. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I, I love that campaign from mm-hmm. Australia. Yeah. Uh, I just, I think that's fantastic. And uh, yeah, like it's it's not, even when you're at those public pools, mm-hmm. um, it's not your license to just like chill and, and, and sit back because they are your children. And honestly, within arm's reach is, is the uh, very, apt slogan that we always say for certain children I you know I think it's the rules may have been updated since I was guarding but it used to be seven and under within yep. arm's reach you know yeah absolutely and you need to be attentive so say you're not at a lifeguard supervised pool which is the safest place to be so think of say you go to the beach and um, it's so easy if you're sitting on a blanket so yep. maybe your phone's away <clears throat> maybe you don't have a book maybe you know you're not theoretically distracted but then someone walks in front of your uh, your towel or your blanket and your child's in the water well maybe you're looking at them maybe you're thinking about something so you're not watching them so I recommend and I did this when my kids were young is get up go in the water wade in Mm -hmm. and be your child's lifeguard just maybe you don't want to go swimming you don't have to get wet but if you can wade in up to your uh, halfway up your legs, and you can watch your children attentively, then you are uh, able to see if there's any changes in behavior. Because, as you know, as a former lifeguard, Jess, when uh, you're trained, one of the things you look for is changes in behavior. Mm-hmm. And um, if you see a child who's swimming, you know, comfortably in the water, say your child's 10 and they're a good swimmer, you think, oh, it's fine, I can sit in my blanket or and um, enjoy the beach. Well, if they get into difficulty, they're not going to start screaming. They're going to go from a horizontal position in the water to more of a vertical position where it's like they're bobbing up and down. And lifeguards can tell by looking at their eyes if mm-hmm. there's a change, like terror in the eyes. Well, if you're back on your towel on your blanket, you know, several uh, feet away or meters away, you're not going to see that because it's really hard. So... You need to get up and you need to watch closely. I know when my boys were were little, um, I would think it's so hard to find your own child Mm because all these little boys look the same (laughs) with their bathing suits on and their bare chest. So you need to get up and and watch carefully so you can see them like you're a lifeguard. And uh, it's, you know, we live in an incredible country with so much beautiful water, pools, and beaches. And uh, it's our happy time. We love it. But this year... And every year there are drownings, and, and sadly, that's why we focus on drowning prevention this week. Yeah, Almost all of them are preventable. It's so true. And I was just looking at some of the stats uh, that there have been 21 drowning deaths in Ontario this month alone in July. And that's, that stat is from a couple of days ago. So I'm, I'm yeah. keeping my fingers crossed that hasn't been updated. Well, it has as of yesterday, 24. Ugh. So just the month of July, one per day yeah. on average. Like that's a lot. And uh, we focus on it this week because like the third week in July, this is the time of year where usually we have the best weather. It's sunny. It's uh, people are on holidays. Kids are out of school. But, you know, 
almost all of these really are preventable. And, um, you know, I don't want to be a negative person all the time, but it's heartbreaking to see or read about stories where, um, you know, someone, say, was swimming and they don't know how to swim, or someone swam out to a raft and they can't swim very well, or a child was on a little air mattress that floated off. Like, these are all things that are heartbreaking and and, uh, very sad, and, and most of them could be prevented. Yeah, no, it's it's very true, and uh, you know, it's it's all about prevention and mm-hmm. knowing, being educated, what you need to know, what you need to know before you're in a situation uh, where you're in a tough spot, because uh, that is the biggest yeah. thing: being prepared and uh, yeah, just a little bit of common sense. That's really all it takes, and uh, you know, that's that's all all we need to do. And 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 fingers crossed, people will be listening and uh, taking mm-hmm. in the messages at their local pools this week, all doing drowning prevention week activities. And uh, fingers crossed, we can kind of yeah. make that number that stop, stop ticking upwards. Yeah, yeah let's let's, Absolutely. So let's just, hold it where it is. I guess the key message is, you know, don't be a distracted parent. Just focus on that one thing. Your primary job is to uh, to watch your child 100% and, and, and treat it as an opportunity, quite frankly, just to focus on one thing at a time because we're always drawn to other, doing more than one thing. It's, it's our nature. And that's absolutely true. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for your time today in uh, chatting with us about this really important issue. And if you're listening out there, which I hope you are, put down your phones when you're by the pool. And also, don't you don't want to drop it into the water either. So no. just keep it far away from you. And yeah, uh, that's exactly. for the best. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Barbara. You take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Put your phones down when you're with the kids. By the pool. By the beach. You are their own lifeguards. All right. We've covered it. We've talked about it. Everyone's listened. The message is hit home. <laughs> we need to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about something called selfie dysmorphia. Have you heard of this? I had not until like this morning. And I'm sad to say, though, that I understand how it's become a thing. Yeah. We're going to talk about that phenomenon when we come back on London Live after this break. Welcome back to the program. When I uh, left off and sent you to commercial, told you that we were going to talk about a term called selfie dysmorphia. Yeah, I had never heard of this term before this morning. <laughs> and it's it's really sad. Like it it's It's real sad. We live in an age of social media. We've talked a little bit about that already this week. But, I mean, we all take pictures in our day-to-day. Some of us like to have pictures taken of ourselves or take the selfies. Um, In general, I'm not super comfortable with it because, you know, I'm a critical person, like a self-critical person. But if I have control of the picture, then I'm much happier to do it. I just, I I, I get really nervous and anxious when someone else is taking my picture because I'm like, oh God, especially a group picture. There are lots of memes about this where it, like the picture that I take of myself. Oh, great. Looks really nice. You enjoy it. Picture that I am tagged in that's posted by someone else and you just feel like you look awful in it. Yeah, that's my life where I'm I'm very stressed about that. So I can very much appreciate that people are picky about which pictures go online of themselves. But this new trend called selfie dysmorphia is taking it to a whole other other level. And this term was actually coined uh, by a very specific 
person. And he has a lot of experience with this. He's a renowned uh, cosmetic surgeon. And his name is Dr. Tian Eschel. Now, I may have mispronounced his first name. I'm not sure, but I know for sure it's Esho, his last name. And he's based in the other London, London, England. And Global News uh, has done a, a story on this, and they have a video of Dr. Esho talking about this phenomenon. And uh, we're going to listen to what he has to say. Many people know me for coining the phrase Snapchat dysmorphia or selfie dysmorphia. And it was a phenomenon I described, which I noticed first in my clinic. But when I started speaking to more and more of my colleagues, they were noticing the same thing within their practices. And this wasn't just within the UK, this ended up being worldwide. What I was noticing was usually before, way back, patients would bring in pictures of celebrities in, you know, we're talking about 10 years ago of what they wanted to look like. And really this was to help them articulate what they liked. So it may be Angelina Jolie's jawline or someone else's nose. And it helped them give them a way of describing what they needed to the physician, which was okay. What then I started noticing were people were using altered and filtered versions of themselves, which again, in a way, if it's just to give a starting point or a way to articulate what they could have, then that's okay because it acts as a reference point. But for a small percentage of patients, I started noticing they wanted to look exactly like that image. And that image is an unrealistic image to be obtainable and was concern. Um, and in many ways, it had ideals with many mental health disorders that you do see um, within the NHS and the private sector. When looking at someone, if they do or do not have selfie dysmorphia, the key characteristic, I think, is that they do prefer, one, how they look on social platforms rather than in real life. Two, they are obtaining treatments to make them look like they do and appear in their filtered or altered images that they do when they use these platforms. And three, that they're not aware that this is an unrealistic expectation and they're continually going to get these treatments, often disappointed because no doctor, no physician will be able to produce that image that they're trying to obtain. When I see a patient that comes in and I'm very concerned or they have red flags that look like to me like Snapchat dysmorphia or selfie dysmorphia, one of the key things is to try and counsel that patient. One, to explain why these images or what they want to achieve is unrealistic and also to delve further in their past medical history of any previous problems of any mental health problems or um, histories that are related to that. The key part from that is hopefully an agreement which leads on to counselling because for that type of patient, what they want is not going to be found at the end of a needle, a laser or a scalpel. It's going to be found by the right counsel, um, um, sorry, it's going to be found by the right um, counselling, by the right um, practitioner. Some of the requests that relate to people wanting to look like their Snapchat filters um, or altered images are sometimes within the realms of normal. So I want really great skin or I want bigger lips. But one of the strangest I had was a patient really wanted bigger eyes um, like the actual filter had given. Um, it wasn't possible to give her bigger eyes and I tried to explain many times why surgically and non-surgically this could not happen. Um, and for that patient, luckily there was a realization that this wasn't something that could be achieved, but the concern was that, you know, in that moment, they wanted to do anything possible to achieve it. 
I think only hopefully by identifying this trend and then having more and more people research and seeing the reasons behind, therefore we can look at solutions to treating this just as we treat other mental health disorders. Okay, so that was Dr. Tion Esho, based in uh, the other London, London, UK. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to just offer a couple of little thoughts on uh, selfie dysmorphia. That's coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. Just really quickly before we have to go for news, uh, you heard a clip from Dr. Tian Esho. That was on Global News on their website. And it's talking about uh, selfie dysmorphia, this idea that people, patients are coming to cosmetic surgeons asking for unattainable results, bringing photos of themselves that they've put filters on uh, and saying, can you make my eyes bigger in some cases, or, you know, anyone who's on social media has kind of seen uh, the results of these these selfies uh, filters and everything. And they're neat. It's cool to kind of see and fun. But the problem becomes, as Dr. Esho was saying, when people really start to want to have that exact look, which is just simply not possible in many, many cases. And it is, as he said, indicative of something else going on with that person's mental health. And they try and get to the bottom of that, suss out what's going on with them in order to help them. It is a strange time <laughs> to be humans with social media and all of the things that uh, we can very easily fall into. Bad habits, bad thoughts, comparing our lives to other people, uh, thinking that the images that are put out there of a perfect, happy life are true and they're not. It's, it's that old adage, the grass is always greener on the other side. Well, if it's constantly green, you know what that means? It's probably fake <laughs> because no one's life is perfect. It's just impossible. There are ups and downs for everyone. And I hope that uh, anyone listening just remembers that because <laughs> that is the truth of the matter. And we should all do a better job of just accepting ourselves more for who we are and that's something I work on all the time and I try to as, as best as I can. So it's an ongoing process for many of us. Post the picture. Enjoy the moment so that you can document how you were and you can look back in 20 years and say, ah, why did I want an extra filter on there? It's to totally fine. Anyway, we got to go for news. When we come back, we're talking about uh, the new Canada Food Guide and the reaction to it from Andrew Scheer, leader of the Conservatives, and how he says that he would review it. Well, we're going to talk to a dietitian about that statement coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here, your guest host for London Live. Before the break, I mentioned that we were going to be talking about Food, specifically the food guide that has uh, just recently been renewed, refreshed and sent out from Health Canada. And it, it did shake things up quite a bit. There were uh, there's there are some big differences and the reaction to those differences was swift. Um, but recently, conservative federal conservative leader Andrew Scheer has said that he would review the newly released food guide. And he doubled down on that. This week, he was uh, basically, I guess, campaigning. Uh, he was at a visit to an agricultural fair in a battleground riding east of Montreal on Tuesday. Now, this report is from Global News. And Scheer, at that fair, defended his promise to review the Canada Food Guide in order to make the document reflect research put forward by the country's food industry. 
Shear drew the Liberals' ire last week after he told dairy farmers in Saskatoon the guide is flawed. Health Canada's new guide did away with traditional food groups and portion sizes and focused instead on broader guidelines, including eating more plant-based protein and drinking more water. So the Liberals have said that the document has received an overwhelmingly positive response, including from nutrition experts. They allege that Shear is bowing to special interests and declaring war on Health Canada's research. And Shear is saying that the Liberals are being too dramatic with that response to his his pledge to review the guide. Well, it's interesting. It's very interesting. So on the line to discuss this further, the food guide and Shear's reaction to it is Rosie Schwartz. And she is a dietitian. And she has her own website, rosieschwartz.com. And she joins us now on the line to talk more about this whole story and this, this kerfuffle. Rosie, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me today. My pleasure, Jess. So we've had a, a number of, I would say, food-related stories that have come up over the last little while. Uh, Beyond Meat Burgers have been a big topic of discussion, and uh, people, Canadians specifically, trying to suss out, uh, you know, what is good for us to be eating. And the new revamped Canada Food Guide came out uh, a little while ago now, but the uh, it seems like it's maybe being turned into a bit of an election issue. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer has said that he plans to review it, or that's his intention. If, if he's elected. Uh, what's your take on this as a, a res- registered dietitian? To be honest, Jess, I am shocked. It's the first time that I believe that the food guide has been based on science alone. A lot of scientific evidence has been reviewed, and instead of what's happened in the past, where we've had you know, commodity groups, um, food industry, really playing a major role in what is recommended for Canadians, this time we're seeing something based on science. And so to me, to hear that it's going to be reviewed if if Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives are elected, to me is shocking. Yeah, it does seem that, uh, it, like, I, I don't think I've ever heard of uh, a food guide becoming a, a political uh, uh, volleyball, if you will, being <laughs> tossed back and forth. Uh, the Liberals have certainly, you know, uh, reacted to this and, and kind of called out the Conservatives for it, you know, not not taking kindly to uh, this being used as a, as a hot potato, if you will. Um, as a dietitian, uh, looking at the food guide that came out, like, how did you feel about it? Did you Did you think it was overall positive? How did you feel? I I was very happy with it. I have to say that I did not expect that the government would follow through with basing it on science. When I first heard rumblings about what the food guide was going to say, and I was asked by many people, what do you think? And, I, and my reaction was, I'll believe it when I see it, but I'm not holding much hope out for this. And because in the past, many of the recommendations have been um, based on what what groups that have dollars in it um, are are looking at. So in the past, my my standard um, my criticism of Health Canada was that they used to put 
um, the financial health of industry and commodity groups ahead of the physical health of Canadians. And to me, Health Canada should be looking at how healthy we are. And so that was my my standard line because that's what was happening. So when the food guide came out, I was really happy to see that the government had actually put into action what the science says. Now, some people are um, are criticizing. They say, you know, that you know, where's the dairy? Where's the meat? And if you look, if you look at what Health Canada has produced, there there is dairy there. There is meat for those who want to have it. And so, if people want to eat um, a vegan diet or they want to eat foods with um, that are animal based, the whole premise is that the that the diet should be based on plant foods. That's a foundation of plant foods. It doesn't mean only plant foods for everyone. Yeah, it's so it's essentially it's like we have just maybe a more accepting food guide of different lifestyles, uh, different diets that people uh, are really coming to embrace. Uh, you know, I've I've spoken with um, other other people. Uh, specifically, comes to mind Sylvain Chaclebois from uh, the East Coast. He's a researcher into uh, into food science and and things of that night nature and, and trends. And we are as a society moving towards more plant based foods. There is a drop in in consumption of of meats. Uh, just because of of cost in a number of instances, it's it's pricier to buy those types of things, and so people on a budget are looking at, uh, you know, uh, different options for their protein. So it's just a changing uh, societal way of looking at food and and what we're consuming. So to me, it feels like this food guide really does reflect more of that. Exactly, and what we're also seeing is that the food guide is also looking at how we eat, um, enjoying meals together, cooking, cooking more from scratch rather than using ultra-processed foods, and and so it's not just about you know the actual nutrients. It's looking at food. It's looking at food as pleasure, as a, as as something we do socially and so it's it's much more all encompassing but it does it does it does make significant um recommendations in terms of of as i said the plant based diet but but people here when they hear plant based they think that that means vegan or vegetarian and plant based if you take a, a meal for example um let's say you're grilling something on the barbecue now. Um, you you could make something, you could include beef, but instead of a big slab of steak as being the centerpiece, the star player on the plate, maybe you might put it, um, you know, make some kebabs and put some onions and peppers, maybe even some mango would be delicious on a um, on a, a bed of, you know, it could be brown rice, could be quinoa. And so that's plant-based. That's not... It's not. It's 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 different than what we have been eating. Yeah, it's just just slightly modifying. Uh, you know what we've been doing before. Like you said, it is a big change in terms of our mindset, but it's not that big of a deal when you actually put it into practice. And it's been and it's something that 
um, that health professionals have been recommending for years. We we have not said um, that you know that you you need to eat lots of meat or you need to have lots of dairy products. Yes, you can have dairy products, but the government, for the first time, said choose lower fat dairy products, for example, um, and and look at other protein alternatives, so that it's it's really. As a dietitian, it's great to see that Health Canada is actually following through on this, which makes what what um, Andrew Shear said more upsetting. I mean, he talks about you know his son was a picky eater and um, and he survived on um, I think he said toast and bacon, grilled meats, and chocolate milk, and chocolate milk saved his son's life. Well. If it took, if his son was a picky eater for that long, maybe he should have consulted a registered dietitian to get some help on how to expand his son's nutritional intake. It's interesting, and I, I do feel for, for any parent who has to go through uh, the challenges of, of making sure that their little ones are, are getting the n- nutritional balances that they should. Uh, and there are lots of products out there, too, like uh, like the different, not milkshakes, but like supplemental um, uh, items that you can have that pediatricians obviously have the down low on and, and dietitians like yourself, Rosie. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I, I certainly sympathize with anyone who's going through that. But, uh, yeah, it, it's... I, I don't. I think it's it's not probably a great comparison to kind of harken back to that uh, as a criticism right. of the food guide. Yeah. Well, and Jess, one thing I want to say as a dietitian, rather than recommending even supplements, in some cases I might recommend it if a child is you know their health is is threatened. But I've seen picky eaters, and I will do things like say, okay, over the next couple of weeks, I want you to try two new foods, um, tell me what you think you might try, and come back and let me know how they are. And I talk to them, to the parents, I talk to the kids. Uh, the research shows that if you taste something 20 times, you will like it. So if a, if a child, and, and kids don't like to be picky eaters either. If they're, they're at somebody's house and they've got, and they're at a friend's house and they get, they're serving something that, you know, they're being served something that they hate, they, kids don't like that either. So when I'm talking to kids and I say, tell me two new foods, let's talk about how you could eat them. Come back and tell me how they were. What are we going to try next time? And so as a dietitian, I've seen kids really expand their repertoire of what they're eating. And sometimes it's easier for someone outside the family to help a parent with that. Well, there you go. See, we're learning so much here, Rosie. I'm very. <laughs> it's it's interesting insight, and and I thank you for it, and and thank you for your time this afternoon on uh, uh, chatting about this. Not only like the food guide, but also some tips and tricks for parents out there or anyone who's dealing with a picky eater. You never know. There, there, they they are among us. You never know. People sometimes they get into patterns and they and they don't want to break out of them. So it's good to push your boundaries a little bit. Even adults, Jess. That's Even right. adults. <laughs> I know a few of them, yeah. <laughs> well, Rosie, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Jess. Okay. We, uh, that, again, was Rosie Schwartz. She is a dietitian. You can check out her website, rosieschwartz.com. It's called Enlightened Eater. She also has more on her thoughts of Andrew Shear and his decision to talk about reviewing this new food guide. That's on her website. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking about... Bad 
driving experiences in Ontario, which places get a bad mark, a bad grade on a report card uh, from from a new, or rather, from a from a from a group that's kind of evaluating responses, I should say, uh, about driving in, in different cities or a couple of local cities on the list. That's coming up on London Live. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here, your guest host on London Live. This week, Mike is on vacation. So before our very quick break, I said we were going to be talking about cities that are getting not great grades. If I had brought grades home like this, I would have been in deep trouble. My parents would not have been happy. Now, this report card of sorts about Ontario Ontario's worst cities for driving has been compiled by insurancehotline.com. And looking at the list, we have a, a few local places that have, uh, they're, not, they're not doing very good. Like I said, not all that great, too specifically. And joining me on the line right now to talk about this is insurance expert with insurancehotline.com, Anne-Marie Thomas. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us this afternoon. Oh, it's my pleasure. So we're, I'm looking at the list, and I haven't given away which uh, local cities are, are on the top 10 worst cities in Ontario for driving. I'm going to let you tell us uh, about, some of these, about some of these places. We're in London. Are some of our neighbors not doing so well? Yeah, so the top 10 uh, worst, if you want to call it that, for, um, for overall is um, Orangeville came in at a D, Bradford, Woodstock, Sault Ste. Marie, and Brantford. They all came in uh, in the worst top five. Um, and the worst top 10 um, in addition to those I've mentioned, Sault Ste. Marie, Aurelia, Cambridge, Thunder Bay, St. Thomas, and Barrie. So that kind of rounds out the top 10 for tickets and accidents. On the upside, London did not too badly overall. London proper. It got a B. Hey, that's pretty good. So yay you, London. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because it's it's one of those topics of conversation that people always love to go over. We like to talk about our weather. We talk about our sports. And no matter what community you're in, it always seems that you can talk about the drivers. So here we go. Now we have some hard facts to back this up. London, you get a B. That's not bad. Right. Um, and the others are around there. Like one, one reason or another, um, you know, they may be great for uh, claims. Like, for example, let's talk about London proper. Mm-hmm. For collisions, it's just shy of the top 10 for um, for worst. Oh. Yeah. But, but, redemption. <laughs> redemption in the tickets. You're, they didn't rank too, too badly. They ranked uh, 39 out of 60, so almost 50%. Um, so if the national, if the provincial average for tickets is 6.85%, 7.47 of the people who did a quote on insurancehotline.com from London said they had tickets in the last three years. So not so bad. Yeah. Right? It's not so bad. 
That's what I say. Yay, London. <laughs> you're, you're not in the, like, you know, 15% that maybe the city of Caledon is in. So, yay. Yeah. It's it's interesting. All of these stats, like, uh, you know, insurance insurancehotline.com has really broken things down here. We have, uh, you know, the top 10 on the tickets uh, for other communities. Uh, St. Thomas got 11.2% of uh, the percentage of drivers with a ticket uh, not involving a collision. And the and the average uh, in the province was like 6.9%. So that's a, right. that's a little bit over, yeah. over the average. Yeah. But... Um, you know, in, in terms of tickets and accidents, a, a lot like we don't know the where the people were when they got the ticket or when they got the accident, but um, it's entirely possible that you know it's weather related in uh, London, St. Thomas. You 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 have been known to get some snow. Mm-hmm. I specifically remember. <laughs> at, at a contact of mine sending me a picture of the snow from like two days being as tall as the the, the parking meter. Yeah, that happened a few years ago, and I'm like, oh my good grief! <laughs> so you do you do get some snow. So where there is oftentimes weather that can be considered extreme or harsher than the rest of a province, you do run the risk that you're going to have more collisions, and potentially more tickets. And it could just be that your roads are patrolled really well. Yeah, it, there are a lot of factors, and I think that's really important yeah. to, to point that out, Anne-Marie, you're right. Yep, yep. And, you know, it's, um, you know, but, but really what we wanted to draw people's attention to with, you know, highlighting the best and worst cities is that, it has such an impact on your insurance premium, the number of tickets and accidents that you have. Like, for example, if you have one minor ticket, your insurance company may increase your rate by 5%. They may do nothing, or they may say, you know what? You already have an accident and this one ticket. It puts you over the edge. We think you better find a new home for your insurance. So it really, yeah, it really pays to keep your driving record as clean as possible because, you know, it's the one thing that we can control, right? So if we behave ourselves whilst driving, odds are we won't get a ticket. Yep, that is right? very true. So that's 100% in your control. And we all, we all pay more than we want to for auto insurance in this province. So keep your driving record clean so you don't have to pay more than you have to. And definitely shop around for your insurance rate because, as I mentioned, one company may be okay with one ticket and another company may not. So the trick is to find the insurance company that has the lowest rate for your profile. That is excellent and sage advice. And uh, Anne-Marie, thank you so much for your time this afternoon talking about the uh, report card from insurancehotline.com. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You as well. Bye-bye. So after this break that we have to take coming up for news, we're going to stay on the transportation uh, theme. We're going to be talking with Dan McTagg about this new survey that uh, Global News had done for it by, I believe it was Ipsos. Ontarians are less likely now to take a road trip this summer because of gas prices. Yeah, we're going to get into the specifics of that coming up after the news on London Live on 980 CFPL. 
Welcome back to the program. We're down to our last 25 minutes of the show. It goes so fast every day. I say it every day, but it's true every day. My name is Jess Brady. I'm your guest host this week on London Live. Mike is on vacation. Now, we are on a bit of a transportation theme here. Before the break, we were talking about uh, insurance uh, quotes, but specific to uh, some data compiled by insurancehotline.com about how we're doing out on the roads in terms of tickets and crashes. But now we're talking about how many of us in Ontario are potentially going to take a road trip. Well, this story by Global News says almost half of Ontarians are less likely to take a summer road trip because of rising gas prices. I'll just read you a a tiny smidgen of it here. Just real tiny. Nearly half of Ontarians surveyed, and this is by an Ipsos poll conducted for Toyota Canada, indicated that they're less likely to take a road trip this summer because of rising gas prices. Ah, interesting. Hmm. So does this impact in general, maybe not a road trip, but will we be driving less in general? What what are the gas prices right now? Sort of a thing, you know, why why is this the case? Well, to give us some answers to these compelling questions, we have on the line right now Dan McTagg. He's a senior petroleum analyst at GasPriceWizard.com. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show with us. Good to be here this afternoon, Jess. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about this about this survey, because you were actually quoted, uh, Global News reached out to you for this story. Uh, were you surprised, first of all, to hear that like almost half of us are like, nah, not going to do the road trip, too pricey? Yeah, you know what? I think this is perhaps the first time in a very long time that we've heard uh, admission that uh, affordability issues are starting to creep into the discourse that most Canadians are having. And it's, uh, you know, not just energy costs, but certainly that has a lot to do with it. Uh, grocery prices, the cost of our utilities. Uh, generally speaking, uh, I think most of us feel a significant amount of pressure coming from all angles. But when it comes to gas prices, you know, here in London, of course, we see prices can be as much as a dollar twenty-four, dollar twenty-three point nine in the mornings, and then they drop to a dollar fourteen point nine. But there has been times where those prices are about an average of ten cents a liter higher, and they're expected to go higher. In the days to come, of course, uh, when uh, things start to settle again and geopolitical issues start to uh, make their way known at the pumps, as well as, of course, uh, the government's helping themselves to even uh, an ever larger taxes on fuel uh, come every, every April 1st. Uh, the federal government, of course, increasing by about two and a half cents a litre the price of fuel. So that's only one aspect of it, I think, Jess. And the thing is that I think for most, I'm not at all surprised by this. I uh, wear a couple of hats here. I'm uh, advisor with the Coalition for Canadian Manufacturers, uh, and the cost of energy, too, is having an effect on that sector. The rising costs of electricity, rising costs of, uh, of of energy costs in general are making it much more difficult for companies to make ends meet, and of course, that uh, when companies have to reprioritize their revenues to other uh, necessities, it does mean that uh, there are potentials for uh, you know, job uh, employment issues. And so that really is, I think, part of a much bigger picture that we're seeing here in Ontario. Uh, certainly over the past couple of years, perhaps things will get better. But for now, it looks like uh, we're in for some pretty tough times ahead. And I think Canadians are signaling that. And certainly here in Ontario, where prices have gone down and then gone right back up again. Yeah, you know, and it's it's funny because, well, not funny, but I, I these... 
I guess leisure trips, things of this nature, are some of the first things to go. And they're kind of the, the canary in the coal mine in, in a lot of ways about uh, general worry and about financial health, right? So you're going to start trimming uh, your budget line items on non-essential things. So it's like, yeah, you know what? We can't do that trip out to the East Coast this year, or we yep. can't even you know go to the other end of the province. Uh, it's just it's just too much to really try and justify when we'll need a number of tanks of gas to do it. And those tanks would normally just last last us, you know, several weeks at home. That's right. And the cost, of course, transportation isn't just how far we want to go and where we want to go. It's that we need it to do other things as well. And while public transit is certainly an option, it is not an option for a good number of people who would still need to buy their vehicle. And so vehicles are much more expensive today uh, than they were 10, 15 years ago. Yes, they're more efficient. They uh, use less fuel. In some instances, they might use less fuel, but they also require different standard fuel. Think here of uh, premium gasoline used for many small vehicles. Uh, think of uh, any vehicle now that runs on turbo as a means of uh, you know, getting the vehicle engine size down. That's 21 cents a litre more expensive in some instances. So, yes, it is still having a, an impact in ways that people don't know. I note that uh, Toyota and Ipsos came together on this particular finding. Uh, I worked at public relations for Toyota many, many years ago, uh, well over 25 years ago. And, of course, people bought those vehicles, one, because of their reliability, but two, because of their energy efficiency. And you'll find that many of their vehicles, though, uh, although may run on regular, many of them now start are using premium. And it's the cost of premium prices that are starting to escalate. And, you know, the cost of the Canadian, the value of the Canadian dollar. It's not getting up to anywhere near 131, 132 pennies to buy a U.S. dollar. And that's really important, Jess, because we price all of our gasoline, all of our commodities that you can imagine in U.S. terms. So a weaker Canadian dollar leads to much higher prices. And that, I think, too, is also part and parcel of why people are feeling the pinch. And that pinch is now being really reflected in this kind of poll. Yeah, no, it's 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 it was always very interesting to see it as it comes down, and it's that trickle down effect. Like you know, you're talking about the geopolitical influences as well, um, and often we we feel maybe the, the the everyday person doesn't feel connected to those items, but it's once they start to impact our everyday lives, and we can point directly to you know those those cases, like as as you've said, you know, the Canadian dollar, yep. and like I'm, I'm reading in in the uh, in the article here, you know, also talking about Brexit even. So these are political forces that have nothing to do with Canada, and yet it impacts our everyday life. Very much so. And, you know, the trade issue globally is leading many people to believe that, uh, you know, the the usual way in which we trade uh, in our prosperity was uh, very much a part of that. Canada being a primary export nation, not just for our uh, commodities, but also for our minerals and our, our, our resources, uh, is, uh, is likely caught in a significant crossfire. Of course, it doesn't help that we have those who in this country uh, go out of their way trying to dumb down the idea that blocking pipelines is a cool thing, uh, when in fact much of that is leading to uh, not just significant uh, uh, revenues being taken out of Canada and investors moving to other jurisdictions, but also hitting the Canadian dollar and increasing the cost of living for you and I by diminishing our, our, our uh, really our purchasing power. When the Canadian dollar loses as much as it has, uh, your purchasing power and mine decreases by that much. No wonder we feel strained and that we're working harder, even with the existing wage, but getting less for it. And so I think Canadians have to really wake up to the the, the relationship between the Canadian dollar, blocking pipelines, which uh, you know brings our number one resources to the world, the most valuable ones, oil and natural gas, 
and the cost it's having on uh, our, our standard of living, our social programs, and, and on, of course, the revenues and jobs that it creates. I think it's critical that uh, as we're heading to a federal election right now, Jess, people really wake up and understand that uh, if you have parties out there saying, let's block pipelines, you may want to wonder if you have the financial resources to withstand the possibility of Canada going to a major recession because of that. I feel like there's a lot of um, uh, anxiety over especially this next election and where we go from here, because you have people who obviously, you know, everyone has to be concerned about the economy. Then, of course, everyone is also concerned about, uh, you know, the environment and wanting to make sure that things are being done responsibly. So I, I feel like people often will feel like they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because they're trying to balance all of their interests and and, and wanting to make sure that no one side is, is being neglected, right? It's, I, yep. I, I don't envy all of us trying to make decisions <laughs> right now. Yeah, just don't... Uh gore the golden goose is what i'm saying and i think we've done a damn good job in this country of doing that and minimizing mitigating uh, i you know one of the sleeper issues not you know 100 kilometers from where you are is what happens if oil can't make its way through uh the state of michigan uh because the governor there uh, is really uh involved with the anti-pipeline uh groups uh, and activists we shut down line three uh, rather sorry line five if that happens we have no more oil to run our refineries, our petrochemical sector, uh, we're going to be in real trouble if people, you know, sort of let these things go as a pass and say, oh, it's just about the climate, we're doing the right thing. Mm. I think it's important that we recognize those as, as priorities, but it comes down to it. It's putting food on your table. It's being able to uh, enjoy the benefits of an industry that is, uh, and I have, you know, I've taken this industry on as a member of parliament. There is no MP who's taken on the oil industry the way I did, but I've never sought to destroy it, mm. uh, as many are want to do. I did so because it was, uh, you know, a question of competition. I'm very and deeply worried uh, that we're getting carried away with our the environmental alarmism that is, I think, leading potentially to significant damage to the Canadian economy and the way we live. Well, Dan, I thank you so much for coming on today to share your insight on this and, and your thoughts. My pleasure. And uh, it's always, always fascinating to chat with you and, and get these insights because uh, for, for a lot of us, and myself included, it often feels a bit mind-boggling uh, to navigate uh, the, the, the impact of gas prices and how it all comes to be. So I appreciate hearing from you as always, and, and thanks for your time today. Great to be here. Thanks, Jess. You Bye-bye. take care. Bye-bye. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back on London Live on 980 CFPL after this. Welcome back to the program. It's your Thursday afternoon edition of London Live, and it's Jess Brady here filling in. Mike's on vacation. You have me for 13 more minutes today, (laughs) two hours tomorrow, and then Mike is back on Monday. So have you, you know, we've all seen strange posts sometimes on like uh, BuzzFeed they do like listicles of uh, knockoffs knockoff brands things like that um, where they compare like the the actual brand whether it's designer or whatever versus the knockoff (laughs) where they have them side by side and then you you giggle a little because the knockoff is always like yeah come on like did they try yeah it's clearly a knockoff so I should also mention that Jacqueline Carbone is in studio with me right now because she's oh. going to talk with me on this on this subject. And where I'm going with this is that there's now a report out there that we're learning of this week that the beloved children's Disney film, original, OG, original version, <laughs> Lion King, 
is actually stolen from a Japanese version from like decades Allegedly. ago. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yes. This is the report. And this article that's from uh, uh, CTV National uh, kind of lays out some screenshots side by side. And I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to tilt the screen so Jacqueline can see it as well. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't look good. It doesn't. I mean, Disney, come on. So part of this article reads, uh, the release of the new version of The Lion King is reigniting a debate over whether the classic Disney story was copied from a Japanese manga series, manga, created decades earlier. In a trending Twitter moment, side-by-side comparisons of The Lion King and Kimba, the White Lion, a Japanese manga from the 1960s, played out with startling similarities. Oh, boy. So the creator of the Japanese series passed away in 1989 and uh, is is very well regarded within uh, Japan's, uh, I guess, Animation, yeah, Yeah. animation culture, yeah, and was well-known and much beloved by other artists. So, Kimba the White Lion sounds like... Simba. Simba, the lead uh, character in The King. And it is... (laughs) This is very upsetting. It's just... it's, It's very strange. Now, I'm not... I will say, first of all, that even I was not a big fan of the original Lion King. No one come at me. I just the I think ups- you're just getting like hate tweets right now. Uh, probably my phone's gonna blow up. Um, <laughs> but it's because the dad died in it, and it was a very scary thing. And then I don't know, like the rest it's an of an emotional it was fine. movie. It's definitely an emotional movie. Like, and <laughs> I vividly remember just losing it in the theater. <laughs> my poor mother <laughs> was with me <laughs> as we went to see this. We were real big Disney fans when I was little, and like Aladdin loved Aladdin. We went to see that like seven times in theaters. In theaters, it was pretty intense it's a lot it's a lot it's a lot um but it was you know winter we were in montreal what What else else is there to do (laughs) (laughs) so we went to see that a lot so we loved the remake of of the new aladdin it was really good we enjoyed it um but yeah this so i've not seen the new lion king i haven't watched the old lion king probably since i was about i don't know seven whenever it came out in like the early 90s uh, but yeah, not this does not look good. And like these side by side shots, the art like is so similar. Like even one shot still frame of here, I'm I'm embiggening it as as the kids say, of Simba on one side eating a grub. My goodness. With uh, Kimba, the white lion on the other side eating some leaves with like almost the exact same facial expression. Like I, I understand that sometimes there will naturally be some overlap and sometimes there will be uh, similarities in any artistic endeavor. Like we can kind of harken back to uh, music and often like sometimes artists will outright sample Mm -hmm. and they'll say that and they'll put it in the notes on the track and whatever and they'll say this this beat or this hook this line whatever is from this person this artist. Yeah so they'll credit the original artist that they've you know sampled from. But sometimes they do not. And then they end up in like copyright court, which happened has happened many a time. But also specifically the case that comes to mind is Blurred Lines. That song with Robin Thicke and uh, Pharrell. I forget who else and, was on uh, it. And em- em- Emrata. 
She wasn't in the song. She was oh. in the she was in the music video. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So that I think it was Marvin Gaye's family that I didn't even know that was the thing until until it all came out. Yeah, yeah. So that's so they kind of went after them for that, saying that it was too similar uh, and that there was allegations of plagiarism. And mm-hmm. I think they finally had to settle. They had to pay out uh, a financial chunk of money to settle that one from like royalties because that song was huge. When it first came out and also controversial because of the underlying messages. We'll, mes- we'll, we'll mention that important note um, because, yeah, that is that is something to note. Uh, but, yeah, so that's what I think of with this. But like these screenshots. So like, did Kimba like nuts. happen? Like, did this all happen before there was like really intense copyright laws? Like did or did. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm thinking of another um, The Hunger Games I've heard has stolen things from another Jap from a Japanese film. Um, oh. called Battle Royale, I think, and it's just a it's a younger it's a younger group of school kids who have to like are put in this place and have to like okay fight to the death basically. Oh God, um, it's a little more graphic than the Hunger Games, yeah, but but uh, that's exactly what this made me think of like stealing, not stealing. I don't want to say that. I guess I don't want to accuse anybody of anything. Yeah. but you know, taking this idea and do almost doing the exact same thing. But mm. I like what they do. They, they could have changed the name a little bit more just a if, they, little. if they were like like a smidgen or maybe they weren't even trying to hide it. Maybe. Maybe just that. Oh, no one will notice. Well, it's kind of a big deal now. OK. Just also reading this here. This is not the first time apparently that the Lion King has been criticized Ooh. for stealing, quote unquote, allegedly uh, a law professor at Georgetown Law. And an intellectual property specialist specialist wrote about the Lion King controversy in her 2012 book, From Goods to a Good Life, Intellectual Property and Global Justice. So this this uh, this prof is Madhavi Sunder. Sunder touches on the lawsuit brought forward by the family of Solomon Linda, the South African musician who composed the hit The Lion Sleeps Tonight and received virtually nothing until the journalist from Rolling Stone uncovered the truth in 2000 and exposed the sordid history of exploitation of Linda's copyright. So then this prof goes on to describe the so-called Kimba versus Simba debate, calling the similarities abundant, with one of her major points being a comparison of the characters, which we've talked about. Uh, yeah, a lot of the imagery and art done in this is just, it's it's so similar. Like, I'm all for giving a little bit of leeway. Like, oh, yes, I mean, sometimes you will have similarities and they're unintentional. Mm-hmm, but this looks... It's I like mean, the ex- like you said that like they have this like both have a sour face on. Yeah, like, why are you bo- like the exact same expression? They've also is it is it Pride Rock in like the main, yeah, the so. main? So there's also another image depicting like almost the exact same right down to the rays of sun coming from the horizon. Like it's it is shocking how Eerily similar similar. Yeah. So at that point, I'm kind of like yeah, uh, kind of want to watch Kimbo the White Line now just to yeah. give it some credit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it had a, a slightly different message. Uh, like the the message of the movie was slightly different. Um, I like the series. I think it was a series. Oh, there yeah, you go. I think it was a series. There you are. But yeah, it's it's very very strange. I feel like I remember in in um, university when I was going through my undergrad, there was the not Advent because it had probably been around for a while, but when you went to submit an essay. We started at probably about like halfway through my undergrad. You would submit it online and it would run. There was a program that would run right through your essay. Oh, check to, if it was plagiarized. To, yeah, to check if there were like sections that were plagiarized. And I feel like if we put Kimba <laughs> and the Lion King through a similar software, 
there will be a lot of red flags yeah. and I would be concerned for their grade on that. Yeah, the, uh, uh, I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of F. Yeah, I, I, I think haven't watched all of Kimba yet. Yeah. To be certain, <laughs> but it's, uh, yep. Yeah, it doesn't look good. It does not look good. That's all I'm going to say. All right, well. Jacqueline Carbone, thank you so much uh, for joining me in studio to talk about this. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap up this edition of London Live after this. It's not Mike, it's Jess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> your guest host this week. And for one more day and one more minute, because we are into the final minute of the show, uh, Jacqueline LaBelle is waiting to take over for the news wheel. Uh, but yeah, so busy show. I did not lie off the top of this show when I said it was going to be busy. It was. We ran through a ton of stuff. And uh, yeah, so we have one more day in this work week. It's Friday Eve, which is like what I like to call Thursday, Friday Eve. And yeah, it's going to be good. We have uh, I'm working on all all of the things to come tomorrow. But I wanted to take a quick moment and say happy birthday to my dad. It's uh, Papa B's birthday today. He's out golfing. He's having a great time enjoying the weather, I am sure. We will... uh, Hand things over now to Jacqueline LaBelle for the news. Have a fantastic rest of your afternoon. We will see you tomorrow on London Live.